Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. In part one of our series focused on D-Day, June 6, 1944, we talked about Captain Frank Lilliman, a company commander of a Pathfinder company in the 101st Airborne Division, who was the first Allied paratrooper to land in France on D-Day. And for all the risks associated with being the first one in, he was lucky. I mean, he landed on solid ground, which is more than a lot of paratroopers in the follow-on waves could say. Today, we have the story of Private John Steele, whose unique landing on June 6th has become a part of D-Day lore. The paratroopers at a high level involved in Operation Overlord have two big missions. On the American side, that's going to be the 101st Airborne Division and the 82nd Airborne Division. Their two high-level focus areas are going to be seizing causeways and blocking German counterattacks or reinforcements. Causeways are the exits off the beaches. They are roads that run perpendicular to the shoreline and come inland. And they're crucial to the invasion. We can't win this fight. We can't succeed in the invasion if we just beat the defenders on the beach. We have to get men, material, equipment, trucks, ammunition. Everything has to come inland. There is this surplus of war supplies in England that we need to get onto the European continent. And the way we're going to do that is through these beaches. So we're asking the initial waves to punch a hole in the German defenders, but then they have to start moving in as soon as possible. The longer the allies stay on these beaches that are, you know, there's targets all up and down the beaches. It's congested. It's, it, it increases the risk of being pushed back into the sea. So not only are the seaborne landings punching a hole in those defenses, they have to move inland and they have to move inland fast. The way you do that is in these causeways. The Germans knew this as well. So when you look at areas like Utah Beach, the causeways coming off of Utah were almost like you know, semi-elevated roads is what I might say, because the areas all around the causeways were flooded, making it just about impassable for men and equipment. If you move over to Omaha Beach, the causeways aren't necessarily elevated like we saw at Utah, or at least in comparison, but Omaha has these steep bluffs overlooking the shore that is, again, impassable to, well, very challenging for troops on the ground, on foot, but essentially impassable for equipment. But these roads, these causeways, that's how we're going to get inland. And the idea with the paratroopers is a few miles inland, they're going to start securing these roads, making it a little bit easier. Think of it like some breathing room for the troops coming off the shore, coming off the, uh, the seaborne landing. So when they punch through the defenders, at some point, they'll link up with the paratroopers and a little breathing room. They don't actually have to fight for every single inch that they're moving. The second high-level mission for the paratroopers is to stop any German counterattacks. And this one's tricky. If the Germans counterattack with infantry or maybe even motorized units, then the paratroopers have a chance. But realistically, if Germany counterattacks with a panzer unit or armored formations, the best the paratroopers can do is delay. 
I mean, they jumped in with what they could carry on their persons and their bodies. The glider troops later on would bring in more anti-tank weapons and some artillery pieces. But generally speaking, the bulk of the 82nd and 101st Airborne Division would not be much of a match, long-term at least, against the German Panzer Division. So in terms of stopping reinforcements, stopping counterattacks, that's more delaying. Now, the risk involved with the paratroopers is hard to understate. As we look back on this today, we know that this was just a little part in the overall invasion and they are heralded as these heroes, these warriors that went in, which they they 100% were. We forget that there was a chance that they were just going to be all killed or captured. I mean, there is no guarantee that the seaborne landing succeeded. And if they don't, there's no link up. So if you're a paratrooper that jumps in behind enemy lines and all of a sudden the American and Canadian and the British and the French landings are unsuccessful, where do you go? You're surrounded. One of the ways the Americans tried to mitigate this was by having the 82nd and the 101st jump in relatively close to one another. So rather than push them all across the peninsula, both are generally behind, mostly behind Utah, a little bit behind Omaha. But, you know, if things really go south fast, at least these two divisions have each other they can rely upon to fight it out as best they can. Now, everything in this mission hinges on getting those troops, men, material, everything inland as quickly as possible. And a part of that is going to be seizing key villages and key intersections just off the shore. So these are, you know, the key intersections that move north, south, east, west across the peninsula. It's areas where the Germans have stationed garrisons, have heavily defended in many cases. But in order, again, to get things moving as quickly as possible, we don't want to stay on the beaches. We have to secure some of these key areas. These are going to be some of the most famous names in, you know, American airborne military history, like Karen Tan or St. Mariglise. The task of taking St. Mariglise fell to the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, part of the 82nd Airborne Division, and consists of about 1,800 men. The soldiers of the 505th load up on the evening of June 5th and begin their trek across the English Channel. And again, I just want to think about people like Private John Steele loading that aircraft. This isn't like they're going to go conduct a mission and come back. There's no helicopter landing waiting to pick them up when they're done. They're jumping in and have to be prepared now to fight to the death. And I think it's hard to, well, I have a hard time understanding or appreciating the mindset that, that must just be a part of this whole operation for the paratroopers. It's worth noting, I guess I should say, I didn't bring it up in episode one, but General Eisenhower prepared this. Well, I did talk about his, his letter to the troops. What I didn't talk about was the second letter that he prepared, accepting responsibility for the failure of Operation Overlord. So again, as we sit here today and look at this, this really successful operation, D-Day, Operation Overlord, Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, wasn't sure that it was actually going to work out. But people like Private John Steele load their aircraft anyways, head off over to the English Channel. And the idea with airborne operations is to land in, in one general area. So you're going to jump with squad mates, maybe platoon mates out of one aircraft. And 
your drop zone is going to be, it will include, you know, your squad, platoon, company, battalion, maybe your entire regiment. So although you're coming from different heights and different kind of different areas and different aircraft, when you hit the ground, you should at least be in the general vicinity of your teammates. That's the perfect world, but this is not a perfect world. As the aircraft enter the German airspace, they're met by pretty intense anti-aircraft fire and the pilots have to start making decisions. Now, people like Captain Frank Lilliman going in right after midnight on June 6th had some advantages. There was still an element of surprise, and there would be. For every single one of these jumps, there's an element of surprise involved. But it's a little bit different when you're the first plane than when you're Private Steele jumping with a 505th. At this point, when he gets ready to jump early in the morning on June 6th, 1944, the Germans on the ground have already seen the Pathfinders come through, have seen the drop zones marked, and have seen the entire 101st Airborne Division jump. The 101st jumped a little further south of the 82nd, so they were the first to go, followed not long after. But nonetheless, the alarms are ringing across France. The Nazi soldiers are getting out of their beds ready to fight. And this puts the pilots in, I think it's a really challenging position that we we I really gloss over and have written off before and say, well, they got, you know, they got scared or they got nervous and the jittery. They're flying their first mission into enemy fire and they made mistakes and they made mistakes. And instead of dropping paratroopers into drop zone Oscar, like is designed for the 505th parachute infantry regiment, which is just Northwest of St. Marigliese, their objective, they scatter the paratroopers all over Normandy. It's because the pilots were scared or nervous or anxious or whatever you might want to say. But I've been thinking more about that. And they're having to make these split-second life-or-death decisions. And I don't think they're making decisions of it's either me or the paratroopers. For instance, to make a very successful, accurate drop of paratroopers, the best way to do that is to go low to the ground and slow really give the paratroopers a chance to slow down or give the, you give the plane a chance to slow down over the objective, over the drop zone, drop the paratroopers right at the exact moment. And then they can hit the ground all pretty close to one another and get on with their fight. But when there's anti-aircraft fire and flat coming from every direction, going low and slow is how you get shot down. And what good is this plane full of paratroopers and pilots to the war effort if they get shot out of the sky and all die in a burning, burning wreck? So thinking more about these pilots making these decisions, and many of them asked the paratroopers to jump early before they were over their actual drop zone, too high and often too fast. But I can understand the mindset of better to give people like Private Steel a fighting chance on the ground rather than us slowing down or going further in enemy fire and all of us being killed. I don't know that it was necessarily the pilots just thinking out for themselves or thinking of themselves. I guess the moral of that little rant. Nonetheless, Private John Steele's plane is one of the many that is moving too fast. They're too high. And the pilot mistakenly drops them right over St. Mary Glees. I mean, this is a small town. It's not like we're looking for large city lights. The light inside the aircraft turns red, signaling Steele and his men to get ready. It turns to green, go. 
Private Steel and his chalk jump out into the dark Normandy sky, and there's a problem. There's a building or farmhouse below that has caught fire. Um, it sounds like it was unintentional. Maybe a trace around hit it, or there were certainly early bombardments by American aircraft, and the building's burning, and it presents a couple issues for the paratroopers like Private John Steele. One, it silhouettes them. It is, well, maybe silhouette's not the right way to say it. It's helping shine a light on all the paratroopers falling helplessly. And many of Steele's brothers are cut down by German fire from the ground while they're floating helplessly down. The second issue is this fire is sucking in air, sucking in um, from all directions that's a challenge for people falling under a parachute nearby. And you're seeing steel will watch as some of his brothers will be sucked into the blaze and burned alive. These parachutes are somewhat maneuverable. Um, not perfect, but you can do some work to at least adjust maybe your exact landing point. And steel is using all of his energy to move away from this fire for, you know, those couple reasons. And if he lands nearby the, or anywhere near the fire, the Germans are going to see him the whole way down. He's not going to last long on the ground, right? So he's doing everything he can to pull his chute in a different direction. And in doing so, gets hung up on the church roof, church steeple. Some, some uh, yeah, kind of on the, on the roof of the church, not necessarily the very top, but hanging off the, the side of the church in downtown St. Mary Glee. So, hey, the bright side, that's their objective, right? found it. But as we would see with these airborne operations, the paratroopers from the 101st and 82nd would land all over Normandy. And one of the cool stories, and it happened hundreds of times on June 6th and for days after, is this decision-making at the lowest level we talked about a little bit in the last episode, where when these paratroopers hit the ground and looked to their left and right, expecting to see their squad mates, but not only did they run into somebody who wasn't in their squad or platoon or battalion, they might run into somebody from another division. And all throughout June 6th and 7th and 8th and for a few days, you would have 101st Airborne and 82nd Airborne troops fighting side by side in these makeshift units because that's what you had available. The Worth noting, the drop zone Oscar that the 505th was using was one of the most successful jumps. Um, one of the most successful drops, jumps, I think I'll say, on D-Day. They had more of a concentrated force on the ground sooner than just about anywhere else. And that would lead to some successes in St. Mary Glees, but that's yet to come. Right now, Private John Steele is stuck hanging from a church in the middle of St. Mary Glees. And this was relatively common. Maybe common is not the right way to say it. It happened a lot on D-Day. If you think about it, they're jumping into small drop zones. Then they get dropped in areas that aren't their drop zones. And it's countryside. There's trees, there's power lines, there's buildings, farms, fences, there's flooded fields, rivers. There's a lot of places that these paratroopers can land that can, to be blunt, kill them. Just landing in a tree doesn't mean it's soft. It could snap someone's neck. Many that landed in water or flooded fields drowned. They couldn't get out from under their parachute and from under their equipment. Steele's fortunate. He survives and he's dangling on the side of the church. But he also runs the risk that happened to many paratroopers 
it's war. They would be hung up, unable to get down, and shot and killed by German soldiers. It's warfare. They're in the middle of an invasion. So that has to be running through Steele's head as he hangs on the side of the church. He goes to release his harness, but due to the tension and how he's hanging, he can't do that. He can't get out of the harness. So next best option, he reaches for his trench knife. He's going to cut himself loose. He has the trench knife in hand, but in the, you know, think of the nerves at this time and the adrenaline pumping through your body, he drops the knife. And now a waiting game begins. It lasts a couple hours and Steele has to wonder, am I going to be shot is probably the most likely outcome that he'll be found by the Germans and shot, or will he be found by the Americans, let down, continue to fight? St. Mary Glees would be the first French village liberated on D-Day, but it wouldn't happen soon enough for Private Steele. Eventually, he was spotted by a few German soldiers, and he was cut down and taken prisoner. It's not, we can't take that for granted. I know we like to think, I like to think, you know, somebody lays down their arms, picks up the white flag and says, I'm done fighting. And that's that, right? They're, they're now a prisoner of war and they're going to be treated as such and moved to a POW camp somewhere and whatever it might be. Their war's over, right? But that's not always the case, especially in fights like this during the opening moments of an invasion when there are enemy forces all around you from the German perspective, there's enemy forces all around you. It's so much easier to shoot this enemy combatant that is steel and move on to your next fight, rejoin your men, tie in a gap in the lines, reinforce Omaha or Utah beach, right? It takes a lot of effort to cut him down, guard him, move him to a secure location, and then set up however many guards that need to watch that one, two, six, 20 American prisoners that you have. It's especially if you're in the German position of a fight for your life, it's not a given that you're going to dedicate resources to watching prisoners as opposed to fighting the enemy that's showing up in every direction and killing your brothers and cutting off your supply chain and, and overrunning positions. It's, it's just not that big of a jump, unfortunately for soldiers in this situation, soldiers and leaders alike, to say, we just can't. We don't have the capacity to take prisoners right now. Nonetheless, Steele is fortunate, all things considered. He's captured, moved to a nearby command post, and a few days later, he escapes. And this is something that's easy to gloss over and say, well, he escaped and he made his way back to American lines. But I want to make sure we appreciate the risks he's taking again. He's entering back onto this battlefield. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know where American lines are and he's unarmed. He was fortunate to have been captured the first time. He is just as, if not more likely now to be shot on site, but it doesn't matter. Exits the command post where he was being held wounded. I should say he was wounded in the foot during the initial drop, likely from some flak makes his way back to American lines. And even once he finds them, that's not a given, right? We've got jittery, anxious American soldiers fighting in some of the first battles of their lives, maybe the only battles of their lives. Their their trigger fingers might be a little itchy. They might be nervous. They may not have slept for a few days. It's no guarantee that steel running down a road or crossing through a hedgerow or across a field won't get shot by his own men. 
There's a lot of friendly fire at this point in the war. There's a lot of friendly fire in all war. Steele takes that risk and makes his way to American lines. Once there, is evacuated to England for treatment of his wounds. Now, Steele would return back to his unit to jump during Operation Market Garden into Holland, and he would fight the rest of the war and return home alive. And this, too, is something that I think, I'll say this, I overlook it a lot because when you're reading stories about so many of these heroes, especially in the world wars, you tend to gloss over the fact that he went back after being wounded and continued to fight with his guys. But listen to just the 10-second review of Steele's history in this war. It's crazy. He fought in North Africa. Then he jumped into Sicily. Then he jumped into Salerno. Then he jumped into Normandy, was wounded, taken prisoner, escaped, made his way back to friendly lines, jumped into Holland before the war ended. That's like, that's, if anybody did one of those things, they've got stories for their family the rest of their lives, right? You could write a book about each one of those events, but this was a private in the 82nd Airborne Division that just did one after the other, after the other, after the other. Realistically, by the time he's wounded and captured, and goes back to England to return to his guys, he's already done the bulk of these crazy events in his military history, but it's wild. Anyways, in a awesome tribute to the paratroopers and the allies that took part in Operation Overlord, if you were to travel to St. Mary's today, you would see a parachute with a mannequin paratrooper hanging from the church in St. Marigles, just as Private John Steele did on June 6th, 1944. Now, all of these victories would mean, the victories by the paratroopers and the success they would see would mean nothing if the beach landings didn't succeed. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.